the railroad station was was like the airport where it was limitless possibilities. You probably felt like someone who had a headscarf who was going to the airport, where as soon as you got through that gate, the world opens up. But that gate was damn narrow until you passed through it. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spoon. And I'm Amherst Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. My name is Zachary Nowak, and I'm a doctoral candidate in American Studies at Harvard University. And I'm here to do some research on my dissertation project, which now is called The State and the Station. 19th century urban train stations and state power. So what, what does that mean? Um, I think I can make reference to what I've been looking at here at the Hagley actually to explain that better. So uh, you have this great collection of railroad postcards and most of them are of stations and most of those are of what uh, railroaders call the head house. So if I say to you, picture a train station you are probably actually going to picture what's called the head house. And that's the, the ornate building with a really nice facade where you buy tickets um, and you wait and uh, the, the train schedules are posted. But the train station is way more than the head house. The train station is the head house, um, all the sidings where trains uh, sort of sit and wait while they're made up. It's uh, all of the ancillary buildings like repair shops and warehouses and the freight depot. And literally behind the station, uh, behind the, the train shed that covers the platforms, you can have miles of sidings. And that covers literally huge swaths of, of downtown uh, areas in the United States. And these were even bigger in the 19th century. So you have like dozens of acres covered by these huge stations. And Focusing on just that beautiful building on the headhouse leaves out a lot of stuff that happens at the train station. And one thing that I saw over and over in my research, and I've definitely seen here in, in the archival collections, is the state. And we usually think about the state and railroads, and we think about the connection um, mostly out west of the federal government giving all these land grants. But there had to be some major demolition in um in cities that were already pretty dense to make room for these stations. And as I said, they were huge. They're really big. So you have to knock down enormous um, numbers of houses and, and buildings. And that can only be done, first of all, with a lot of money. And the state provides some of the money. Not just the federal government, but um, legislatures okay these special eminent domain laws for big union stations. And municipalities often um, not only authorize eminent domain, but, but give train um, companies money to buy up land and demolish houses and build these huge stations. What this reminds me of is the the techniques for creating something like the interstate highway system. Um, you know, you have this sort of 19th century kind of version of this earlier method of how do you implement this transportation system in places where there is already a built environment um, that has, you know, an ecology and a community and all of these other things. Um, so do you see similarities between things that happen, you know, sort of later? Um, and this, do you think that this is a precedent for um, some of these things that 
uh, you know, we, we perhaps are more familiar with in, in our more automotive centered culture today. So this builds on some of the eminent domain that's done already uh, in the early 19th century for canals. Uh, but the railroads mm. take that to a new level. I mean, it's, it's, it's orders of magnitude larger. And there's, it's definitely a precedent center setter for um, the highways post-1952 uh, with Eisenhower 1954-56. can't remember when that act is. But there's a difference. Uh, it's, it's definitely a precedent. The, the justifications are similar. So it's, it's um, promotion of economic development. So there's a development aspect. There is a defense aspect. The, the train stations are the military transportation system in the 19th century. And that 1956 Highway Act, um, if you look at the actual name of it, it has military rate in it. So there's definitely a connection there. The thing is the networks are different. Um, canals and, and highways are sort of in the same class and railroads are by themselves for this reason. Railroads create these funnels um, that huge numbers of people wash down into to get into a city. So if you look at, I don't know, let's take uh, Philadelphia. If you're arriving in Philadelphia in 1820, you could uh, come by boat, you could walk in, you could take a wagon, you could take a horse. Um, there are all these different ways to get in. If we fast forward to 1845, um, you have the train, but it's a pretty small number. If we jump forward to, to 1876, huge numbers of people are coming to Philadelphia. If they're coming from more than a mile or two away, they're almost always coming through these big train stations. Um, early on, all the different train companies would have their own stations. So these were all relatively small. As you go forward, there's this tendency from the 1860s on to have what are called union stations. It has nothing to do with the, the Civil War, but it's where several different railroad companies unite and have one big station. Cities love this. It's super convenient for people um, getting on and off trains. It takes up less of a footprint initially, although they grow really big. So these big union stations are, they're just huge funnels where thousands and thousands and thousands of people pass through every day. And there's no intention, I don't think, on the part of the state to, to create what is a private space. All of these big train stations are private. They're owned by the railroads that come into them. But the state takes advantage of a multiplier effect on its power. So if you take the 19th century municipal state, it's not, a, it's not as strong as, as even the early 20th century municipal state with the progressive era. But they figure out pretty quickly that if they put state agents in the train station, it's this perfect leverage point. Um, and they do it for, for different kinds of things. So number one, you have uh, commodities inspectors. So William Cronin has all this, um, all this stuff about the grain coming to Chicago, but he really doesn't, he, he talks about the inspectors and how the grading system was created, but that's a point where the state has control over this huge market that before was dispersed to some extent. Um, so there's commodities inspectors, there are county health officials. So um, I saw in your collections today, they're trying to segment off the emigrants that are coming into the station because they're dirty and they don't have good manners. So they want to separate them from the other passengers. You can very easily take those people, put them in a room and then have the county health inspector come in and check them all to see if they have cholera. Um, so the state has control over people in that place in a way that it didn't before. 
And the, the, this leads to what I call the railway panopticon. And it's basically the state places municipal police. And I found it today. Um, I was looking for it and I found it in the Reading Terminal. There's a complement of Philadelphia municipal police. So they're not, they're not railroad cops. They're not night watchmen. They're police. And they're in that station. They're stationed at the station. And they're just sitting out there doing essentially stop and frisk. They're just waiting for people. And, and these people might be known criminals. So tough guys that they know by sight. They might be people that, um, that they've never seen before, but they have a description of that's arrived via telegraph. So I have this great, great um, example in St. Louis. Louis Betts leaves Minneapolis late one night. He, he works in this diamond store and he steals a gun and a couple diamonds and heads out. And his employers must have known that he had a relative or somebody in St. Louis. So they go to the police in Minneapolis. The Minneapolis police telegraph to St. Louis and say, we think this guy's on the train to St. Louis. Of course, he's only gonna arrive in one spot, the Union Depot. This is what he looks like. Louis Betts, the next day, steps off the train in St. Louis and promptly gets arrested. And then they send him back to Minneapolis, sort of like extradition. So that also allows the relatively weak 19th century American municipal government to participate in this national level. Um, they can they can act, the, the city of Minneapolis can act on a national level, as can St. Louis, as can Philadelphia. They can be sending out these arrest warrants across the country because these um, ne'er-do-wells are going to pass through those stations. Doesn't mean they always catch them, but it's a powerful way to do that. However, they also use this railway panopticon um, to do other things. And one of them is enforced patriarchy. So if you think of Foucault, Foucault says, oh, we're gonna build this big building. The state is gonna build this enormous building and we're gonna imprison two, 3,000 people and there's gonna be the one watcher in that central tower. And very few of these are ever built. Um, that's really expensive and it's a state expense. Way better is have railways build these huge institutions where people aren't immobile. They're not immobilized, but they could be immobilized. So they all have to pass through this very small, the, the doors, the gates in Foucault's panopticon are closed. The gates in the railway panopticon are open, but they're narrow. So all these people are passing through. So what happens? You have an eloping couple the father figures it out the next day, gets all mad. Somehow he thinks they're going to head out to St. Louis. He's sending telegrams to St. Louis. And the St. Louis police will stop the eloping couple and arrest them. With no, There's no actual charge. They just arrest them and hold them. And they'll notify the father, we have your daughter here. What do you want us to do? Um, this also happens with really upsetting regularity to what I think are abused women. So women are, are fleeing an abusive husband or, or uncle or whatever relative. Um, and sometimes they dress in men's clothing, try to get away. And the police stop them and say, where, where are you coming from? You know, why aren't you with someone? So unaccompanied women are, are definitely the, the object of police gaze in this railway panopticon. But there are also these weird effects on how people view space. So... Um, I didn't find any in your collection here, but I've seen, no, I did, no, sorry, I did find in the railroad postcard collection, again, there are postcards of newsstands 
and railway stations. There are postcards of um, the candy store or the fruit stand. And when I first saw these, it's not the first archive I've seen them in. When I first saw these, I thought, why in the hell would anyone have, why would a company print a postcard of this sort of spot and think they could make money on it? Because clearly the postcard company would not print that if they didn't think someone would buy it. And people did buy them. And when you look on the back, they never say, wow, this is weird. Can you believe they made a postcard of the candy store? And so I thought, okay, I have to go back and, and try to figure out why people would think this interesting. Why would somebody buy a postcard of a newsstand and train station? But I think it's, you talked about antecedents of the Highway Act and mm -hmm. the, trains, the railroad network being sort of like that as far as eminent domain. I think it's like the mall. I don't think there's any other place in the 19th century American city where you can go inside a large private building and there are other private separate entities inside of it. I mean, I, it's like the Galleria in Milan where you walk inside this, this like sort of mall uh, that's been formed by uh, putting arches over streets. You walk into that and see all these private stores. I think people thought that was really novel to go in and see all of these um, private businesses inside the train station. And I also, I think it made them think that space was public. Mm. So this is a, it's, it's always a really difficult thing to figure out what was in the minds of the average everyday person in the 19th century. If they didn't, if the average person didn't write a memoir or whatever, or, or a diary or write letters, how did they feel about the train station? And I think you can, you can infer that from people protesting vigorously when police stop them from doing certain things. They constantly are saying, this is public property. You can't stop me. And the police say, it's not public property. You're on private property here. And the courts uphold that. So are you saying that there's that people are making an argument about whether the police have authority in this space? I mean, because like police could arrest them on the streets too, but it, or is it an argument about um, or a dispute about what, like whether the police are like serving a private function as opposed to a public one by doing these things that aren't necessarily what we would think. I mean, I don't know what the legal differences are today, but you know, just stopping a person without cause. It's, it's <laughs> both, it's both. Um, so first of all, the, the police in these train stations are often, they're municipal police, but they're often, their salaries are usually paid by the, the railroad company mm. that own, or companies that own the, the train station. So there's definitely some ambiguity there about whose orders are they enforcing? Um, but people often are protesting access. There's a woman in Detroit uh, who wants to go onto the platform and find someone who's going up to uh, Port Huron. And she wants to tell that person, oh, I want to send word with you to my daughter who just had a baby. And the, the train station employee, backed up by this policeman at the gate, say, no, you can't come in here if you don't have a ticket. And she says, no, I just got to find somebody on the platform to let my... And they say, no, you... You can't come in here. She takes out her, her umbrella and whacks them over the head and goes onto the platform and finds somebody. But she gets really agitated and says, this is public space. You can't, you can't bar me from this. You can't bar my access. And she's not right. Legally, they can. Mm. But it's this odd thing where municipal police are barring access to a private space. 
it seems to be, uh, it sounds like you're describing a place where this negotiation is happening sort of in real time about like what it, the, this, this kind of novel sort of gathering place that's like the public square of the late 19th century, but that it actually is not public and that there are sort of conflicts and people are kind of negotiating what that space really means and what it and there's also what it's going to be there's a lot of discussion of federal government subsidy of railroads through these land grants and yet that wasn't super visible to the average 19th century person if you take a train from st louis to kansas city and you look out the window you're going to see farms you're not going to see those five mile square checkerboard land grants that's invisible but if you live in a city, um, if you're in Philadelphia in uh, 1891, you're going to see the city of Philadelphia allow the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad to demolish huge pieces of really dense lived space for that railroad. So 19th century people don't see the state's intervention out on the lines. They see it in the cities. It's super obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find it usually super unfair. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could make some assumptions about the areas that are being cleared for this, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, h- how that how that panned out? What, what were the sorts of places that were experiencing demolition and clearance? So you said it before uh, that this is a um, this is a huge precedent to the highway um, eminent domain. And it's the exact same stuff. Um, when you put a huge train station in a 19th century, late 19th century city, so when you build these big union depots, you don't just have little scattered ones, you need to get, you can't be right downtown usually. Um, it's hard, those are really pretty dense. And so you have to get as close to the edge of downtown as you can, but still where it doesn't cost too much. And those spaces inevitably are slums, there are low-lying areas um, that, that at mid-19th century are these liminal spots where people are still doing sort of extra market um, work. So in the case of St. Louis, there's this big mill pond, which is, again, privately owned. It's, it's definitely private property legally, but it functions as sort of a public park. And it's also a place where people go and um, there's prostitution there. There are people doing baptisms, which is a form of of work if you're a preacher, um, people washing clothes in this in this big pond. There are a lot of people fishing, and there are so many people fishing, and they're talking about catching 30 to 40 fish. I think it's probably safe to say it's subsistence fishing. So often these stations have to be, there's, wherever the station gets built was someplace before the station got built. And it's almost inevitably where poor people live and work. Um, and it, and almost inevitably too, where they can do some work outside of wage, uh, wage work. And those, those spaces just get eliminated to make these huge stations. If you were a middle-class, upper-middle-class white guy, I think you walked right through that station and, and it, was, it represented mobility to you. And I think to everyone else, it represented potential mobility. But it was also, if you were an unaccompanied woman, if you're an African-American man, if you were a white man who had ripped trousers, it represented a point where you could be immobilized by the state, um, where the state could stop you and do something with you or let you go. Who, who do the, the people who are concerned about this increasing surveillance practice, like what do they identify as the problem? 
It's a tough question to answer because my archive is so biased. Um, I initially looked at court records, and yet a lot of the stuff like stop and frisk that goes on at the station never makes it to court because the people will ultimately be released. A lot of the women that are stopped aren't arrested and held. That's actually pretty rare, but they're harassed. Um, and so my archive is newspaper reports. So the price of reconstructing the social history of the railway station is uh, subaltern, surveillance of subalterns by the state. But even then, it's only the people, the, the railroad reporter is only gonna write about the people that the police stop uh, and harass. The people they don't, they let go. And, and the protestations of the people who are stopped are not always recorded. And so it, it's only rarely that you have someone like the woman in Detroit who's pretty vocal about why she thinks she shouldn't be stopped and that's captured and written down. And even then, it's written down in a sort of dialectical English that I think is intended to make you, the sort of cultivated urban, urbane reader, laugh at her, that she's so silly she would think that railway space was public space. Um, so I don't know, the, the archive biases it. I think it's, it's tough to figure out, if you're an African-American man in 1882, how did you feel? I'm not, I don't know, You, but I'm, I'm I'm guessing, given the frequency that, that subalterns were stopped, that you did not feel like the railroad station was was like the airport where it was limitless possibilities. You probably felt like someone who had a headscarf who was going to the airport, where as soon as you got through that gate, the world opens up. But that gate was damn narrow until you passed through it. Mm. I think one of the things that, that I think about in there is the sort of you know, I, I realize that they're not municipal buildings, but you, I think we can think about them as sort of civic buildings and that they're sort of one of the buildings that might have appeared in the little vignettes on the side of a bird's eye view map um, at, in the late 19th century. You know, the train station would have been there, City Hall, the newspaper publisher, the major, you know, businesses and factories and things like that. And that's sort of you know, a, an expression of civic pride too, and I wonder if the if that's another thing that's that you see going on here, especially in a time of you know rapid urbanization in the United States. It's funny you're light years ahead of me because it took me a long time looking at these vignettes to figure that out. So if you look at mentions of stations early on, when when each railroad has their own station, that's first of all they're small. Um, but those are pretty clearly private buildings. People never, there's no, there aren't cops there. Uh, there aren't businesses inside. They're like, there's like a, I have a great picture of a, um, a stand across from a small railway, railway station, but not inside of it. Those places are never pictured in, they're hardly mentioned tourist guides. I mean, you really, you don't even find like train stations. They just say railroads and they'll say where it ends. There's no even, there's no mention of the station. The Missouri Pacific for years just says, go to this corner. It's like there's not even a building there in a way. Um, but as you get, especially these big union stations, or even if they're not union multiple lines, these really big stations, terminal stations like the uh, Reading Terminal here in Philadelphia, um, it changes. And the visual culture changes exactly like you just said. So whereas early on around the edges, you, d you definitely don't have train stations. Um, you definitely do getting like in the 1870s and on. And it's interesting too, because the name changes. So Missouri Pacific Railroad Depot, that's clearly a private space. The St. Louis Union Depot, 
what's that? Sounds like it's a civic building. But yeah, the visual culture changes, and I found a great instance here, which was really exciting. There's a little book in your collection, a view book uh, made by the Pennsylvania Railroad, and it's, it's labeled Souvenir of Buffalo. And so it's all these views of Buffalo. But they also have a couple pictures of uh, Philadelphia. And one of them has, um, one of them has the brand new Pennsylvania Railroad station. And then up in the corner, they have Independence Hall. And it's, boy, it's hard not to make that visual connection when it's inset right into the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, here's our big, beautiful building that is a civic building, sort of like this one. Mm. Um, so yeah, there, there's an active attempt by the railroads to make their stations into, I mean, they, they're, it's, it's like, a. There's a great article about fractal public and private space. I think the author's name is Gill or Gall. But she says it's not like there's boundaries or uncertain boundaries. Public and private can be folded into each other. And these are this is used by the railroads. It's ambiguity. When they want it to be public, they want this to be a civic place, it's great. When they want to ask the city to station police there to guard it, that's awesome. But when someone does something that's going to hurt their bottom line, um, they're immediately going to invoke the state to get rid of that person. So uh, there's a, a, a flower guy who's in the station, and he's just in the waiting room. He has the permission. He's paying rent in the waiting room to sell flowers here in Reading Terminal. And then they find out he's been taking packages um, and, like, checking packages for people, you know, for a nickel or whatever. And so they jump right on him. Here's a guy who's been paying them, like, I don't know, $200 a year for years. And they jump right on him and say, if you don't stop this, we're going to bring in the police and you're going to get kicked right out on your butt out in front, on Market Street. Um, and then they immediately say, internally, that they have this discussion. It's like the next day, someone writes, the station superintendent writes to the first vice president and says, I think we can expand our um, uh, package checking box and put one right down on the first floor. There's clearly demand for it. <laughs> the railroad uses that public-private thing whenever they want to. Mm. I think uh, train I travel, yeah. I think it peaks in 1929 nationally. But those other methods of transportation sort of take you back. When you think about today, um, arriving in Philadelphia, it's a lot closer in a way to 1820 because there's not a central point that most people are coming to. Whereas in 1895, you're either coming to that, uh, what is it, Broad Street, or you're coming to the Reading Terminal. Mm -hmm. Dollars to donuts. If you were arriving in Philadelphia from more than five miles away, you were arriving at one of those two points. Mm -hmm. And now that's not true. And it wasn't true in 1820. Mm -hmm. I just want to quickly go back to what you said at the beginning, which I found really interesting and compelling. And that is sort of thinking about the railroad station beyond the head house. And we've mostly been talking about the head house in the conversation that we've had so far. I understand that the head house is probably really important because it's the place that most people go to and move through. If you right. come to the station, you move through this. This is sort of the obligatory passage point, right? Um, but the rest of the station, whether we're talking about the sidings, the um, platforms, uh, maintenance buildings, all of this you know, cute, you know, if the if the head house is the tip of the iceberg, what how is the rest of the station that you painted out for us in the beginning of this conversation? How is that policed and how is it related to the argument that you're making about which sounds to me to be mo mostly about the head house so far? It's difficult. Um, it's difficult because those spaces are in a, like an archival blind spot. 
because a lot of my sources are um, uh, from newspapers. And so you have all the stuff where the reporters are, they're at the head house or they're on the platforms. Um, occasionally people are brought in, they've been arrested out in the yards, but it seems like a lot of the policing in the yards is gonna be railroad employees, not municipal police. And there's just no granular um, archive of what of the reports that those people made, if they made any at all. Mm. So one thing that I thought I would see a lot more of is hobos. Hobos, my guess is, are on their, their back in the yards because they need access to water and they need uh, wood that they can break up and make fires with and they need some coal maybe and they want to hop trains. And if you're going to hop a train, the train has to be going, it has to be far enough away from the head house that they're not going to be a lot of police hanging around but it has to be close enough to the head house that you can get on it without killing yourself and the same thing for getting off so my guess is hobo jungles you hear about these hobo i bet they're i bet if you did a gis thing and you said okay the train is going this is the perfect point to hop a train that's where the hobo jungle is going to be i bet it would work up perfectly um yeah i don't that's one thing that's hard. I don't really know what's going on back there. When you have strikes, you hear about what's going on in the machine shops. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that people do, one thing that I reports of, of the yards is scavenging. So people will scavenge coal on the sidings mm -hmm. and they, they're constantly getting hit by trains. It's terrible. Um, so people are out there scavenging coal and it sounds like workers are intentionally knocking coal off of um, coal trains for these people to then be able to come and scavenge. Mm -hmm. And so some of the subsistence patterns that were in these spaces earlier, whether they were like mill ponds or whatever, or forests, some of those subsistence things continue even after the railroad comes, but they have to change. Now they're totally dependent on these, these capitalistic flows like coal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's still, it's hard. I, I think if we can go back to the visual um, yeah. metaphor, Looking through your visual collection, find a lot of these postcards of the head houses. There are a ton of pictures of locomotives in your collection. So I think it's Rao is one of the photographers. There's a bunch of photos of uh, Mouch Chunk. Um, that's uh, Jim Thorpe is the name of a town now, but it used to be called mm -hmm. Mouch Chunk. Um, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos that I think railroad buffs love. You know, Engine 421. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we represent railroads in, in an analogy, the way we write history is locomotives, head houses, and another great uh, visual uh, that I actually love to look at are maps of the railroad network. But they're lines. And if there are dots where you have these connectors, where you have these stations, they're just little dots. And they, they shouldn't be little, they should be huge. Because I think in the 19th century, where the train stops, is at least as important as where the train goes. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships, search our collections, and listen to more stories from the stacks, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org.